0: Muhammadan rasulullah wa adnu ilayhi sajidan Rahim Muhammadin wa ala Ali wa we are still obviously on the incident of the Khandaq the incident of the uh, trench or the Ahzab and uh, we had just uh, finished last week talking about the beginnings of the story of the uh, treachery that the Muslims learned for the first time that the uh, Yehud had uh, switched gears. And uh, the details of this conversation are recorded uh, by Ibn Ishaq uh, without any chain. Uh, and uh, Ibn Ishaq says that Huyayy ibn Akhtab, uh, who is of course the father of Safiyya, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, uh, Huyayy ibn Akhtab, he made his way back into Medina. And, as we had said, you cannot protect the entire city. And Huyay knows the city because he has been there numerous times. And news reached the Banu Quraidha that Huyay is coming. So as soon as the the Banu Quraidha heard, they became worried because this smells like treachery. Why would Huyay be coming to the Banu Quraidha? Something is wrong. So the chieftain of the Banu Quraidha, his name is Ka'b. His name is Ka'b ibn Malik, not to be confused with Ka'b ibn Ashraf, who has already uh, been mentioned and it was uh, the, the one that was uh, assassinated this is Ka'b ibn Malik the what? Uh, the one that was uh, assassinated sorry my bad yes uh, the one that was assassinated is Ka'b ibn Al-Ashraf yes my bad my mistake Ka'b ibn Ashraf uh, and uh, the, pro- the Banu Qurayza, when they heard that Huye is coming they shut the door and Huyay came and he stood outside the door and he's knocking on the door and he's saying, Oh Ka'ab, let me in. And Ka'ab said, No, you must be bringing us evil omens, bad omens, i.e. your bad luck. We don't want to have anything to do with you. Your presence here is bad luck. If they hear that you're here, it's automatically going to cause problems. And Ka'ab said that I have a treaty with Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and I cannot break my promise for I have only seen from him truthfulness and fulfillment. I cannot break my promise with him. He's been good to me. I don't want to break my promise. He kept on knocking on the door. He kept on begging him, let me in, just listen to me uh, until finally he used a different tactic. And he said to him, the only reason you're not opening the door is because you are greedy to even share your food with me. You don't even want to feed me. How selfish can you be that I'm outside, I'm alone here, and you don't even want to feed me. You must be so stingy that even your food you don't want to share it. So he used an emotional blackmail right? Now obviously they were friends in the days of Jahiliyyah, he's the chieftain of one tribe, is the chieftain of the other tribe. And now he's, of course, he knows that he's alone in Medina, and so he says to him, at least give me some, basically he's saying give me some food at least, how can you just let me be out here for so long? And so this softened the heart of Ka'b, he opened up the door, as soon as the door opened, khalas begins the barrage of emotional blackmail again. And uh, insistence, and Huye says to him, I have brought you. Oceans of men. Bihar, I've brought you oceans of men. And I have brought you the chieftains, Sadat Quraysh, and the Sadat of Ghatafan, and the chieftains of this tribe and that tribe. And they are here b'khaylihim warijlihim. They are here with their uh, armies and with their servants. Everybody is here. And they have promised me that they're not going to leave until they have wiped out Muhammad and his companions. Right? And he begins using this tactic now, can you imagine uh, that he knows exactly what points to press, he knows that deep down inside, Ka'ab wants to side with his own people but he's scared of treachery, he's scared of defeat, and so he assures him, how can we possibly lose we have this tribe, we have that tribe, we have this many khayr, we have that many ibl we have the entire army, and he keeps on, the Ibn Ishaq says he kept on persuading him throughout the night he keeps on going and going, he's relentless until finally he says, and I shall be with you if they leave, and I will face your own fate. And that sealed his own fate as we shall study, as we shall see. He sealed his own fate for himself. That he's basically so confident, and this means that he really did believe that there's no way that this plan can possibly fail. Because he basically gave himself up to them. And he goes that, I, sh- I can be a hostage for you guys. Now, he didn't use the word hostage, but you get the point here. That I will pledge my own safety with your safety. So that if anything happens to you, then I too will face the same consequence. And that's exactly what happened. He faced the exact same consequence. This was his own verdict. Allah delivered it to him. It was his own verdict. Went back on him, but we're getting, uh, uh, jumping the gun. That will be next uh, Wednesday, inshaAllah, the, 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 what happened to the Banu Qurayza? And Ka'b was still hesitant. And he said to him that you are not good news. You are, and then he used a metaphorical or beautiful expression in Arabic, which basically translates as, you are a cloud that when you look at it, it looks like good water. But when it comes, all it gives us is thunder and thunder and lightning. Right? It gives us no rain. Like you're making these big fat promises, but the end result is not going to be good. So deep down inside his Instinct is warning him, right? There's the sixth sense here. This is not right. This is not right. But he kept on pressing and pressing and pressing until finally he convinced him with whatever he did, the details we don't know, but he convinced him with whatever promises, uh, whatever money, whatever extra fortresses, whatever was given, we don't know the details. All that we know eventually by the morning time, khalas, uh, Huyay has convinced Kaab to flip sides, right? And so Kaab physically tears up the treaty. There was a physical covenant, right? And we have said that this covenant, at least three times, our Prophet had confirmed it. At least three times. The latest of them, barely a few months had gone by. The latest of them. And this is why we need to understand the punishment that's going to come. People look at it divorced from what happened before. They look at the punishment without looking at the context. They look at the punishment without looking at how many times they have been given a chance. right? And even Kaab, deep down inside, knows this is trouble. Even Ka'b, he says the Prophet, he doesn't use the word the Prophet, he says Muhammad has promised us and he has always fulfilled his promise. And he has been sadiq, he has been wafi, he is fulfilling his side of the bargain. But he needs to be persuaded until finally uh, when... Huye basically said, I shall throw in my lot with you. That's how confident I am. So then this was really the thing that made him feel, you know what, if Huye is that confident, that he's willing to basically come with us and be on our side, physically be on our side, so confident is he, then he must be in the uh, right. And frankly, from his perspective, how could they possibly fail? 10,000 strong, they just have to wait it out. There's just no question eventually from their perspective is going to break. And so, uh, eventually, as we said, Kaab did flip and somehow, I looked up as many books as I could. I don't know how the story is. Zubayr ibn al discovered this. When the Prophet ﷺ sent him, how did he discover this? We don't know. All that we know, when Zubayr came back, he was the first one that the Prophet ﷺ sent because there was a premonition. Most likely, most likely, Zubayr was basically spying on the outside and he saw Huyay come, this is the only thing I can think of because obviously Zubayr is not inside the fortress obviously, so what could he have seen other than Huyay, maybe with a small entourage because he's definitely not going to come alone basically sneaking his way, making his way to the door this is a theory, I don't know there's not mention in the books, how did Zubayr find out so, Zubayr comes and he gives the first news that something is wrong that uh, the, 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 the Banu Qurayza have flipped, but this is not sure because Zubayr is not an eyewitness He's not hearing, right? He's looking from the distance. He's not hearing with the conversation. So this was when, as we said, the Prophet he praised Zubair, and he said, every Nabi has a Hawari, and you are my Hawari. You are my disciple. You are my Hawari. But then he had to confirm. So what did he do? He sent the delegation of the senior-most Ansar, the people who in the days of Yathrib, they had the best relationship with the Banu Quraydah, right? So he chooses the right ambassadors. He chooses Sa'd ibn Mu'adh. And Sa'd ibn Mu'adh is the leader of the Aus. He chooses Sa'd ibn Ubada. Sa'd ibn Ubada is the leader of the Khazraj. Their two leaders were called Sa'd, they're called the Sa'dan, the two Sa'ds, right? Sa'd ibn Mu'adh is the Aus, Sa'd ibn Ubada is the Khazraj. Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, he's gonna die in the Khandaq, we know. Sa'd ibn Ubada, he was the one who had the garden, that at the death of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, the Sahaba had uh, met, over, uh, uh, met over at that garden uh, to discuss who would take over. And Sa'd ibn Ubada, he, had, uh, he felt that he also deserved to be the Khalifa because he was the senior-most of the Ansar. Ansar. But Sa'd ibn Wa'ad had died by that time or else he would have been the senior-most. But Sa'd ibn Ubada felt that Perhaps I should be. And therefore, between him and Abu Bakr, there was a little bit of a small bit of attention uh, in the time of the Khilafah. But anyway, that's besides the point here. This is Sa'ad ibn Ubadah. Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, the the leader of the Khazraj. And Abdullah ibn Rawaha, and also uh, Khawat ibn Jubair. These four of the Sahaba, senior of the Sahaba, they went as a delegation to confirm are the Banu Quraida with us or not. And the Prophet ﷺ said to them, go and confirm this news that has reached us. And if it is true, then indicate it to me indirectly. uh, uh, uh Ilhanuli Lahna. Indicate it to me. Ishara, do Don't say it explicitly. Why? Because the Prophet is he's in the public. He's not in his house. He's in the public. He's on the front lines. He doesn't have a private audience. Our Prophet was not like the emperors or kings that he is all alone and you need an entourage and secretaries to get in. He's with the people. And anything that is said to him can be heard by the other people. So he says to them, when you come back, don't be explicit if they have become traitors. Indicate to me why he explicitly says, do not spread fear amongst the people to weaken them. Right? This will weaken them. Don't need to tell them this. But if they are still on their treaty, then shout it out loud. Make i'lan. Tell the people that they're still on the treaty so that they feel at ease and at content. So they went forth, they went to the Banu Qarayza and Ibn Ishaq says they found them to be the most vulgar that they had ever seen. The most vile, the most foul mouth that they had ever seen. The worst attitude ever that they had with the people of Yathrib, the Sahaba, the Ansar. They had never had such an attitude with them. And uh, they mocked the Prophet sallallahu and they said, who is this Rasulullah that you say, astaghfirullah, right? And they say, we don't know any Muhammad, and we don't have any treaty with him. Blatant, you know, uh, arrogance. And they know, I mean, everybody knows they're lying, obviously. This is the pinnacle of arrogance, and this too cannot be forgotten. When did they show this attitude, and at what st- time did they show this attitude? To say that, ma nadri Muhammad, who is this Muhammad you guys are talking about? What kibr? to flip over like this, right? And they're now denying we have no treaty, and they had physically torn it up. So we have no treaty uh, with this person that you call Muhammad. And uh, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, he was known to have a temper. And so, Ibn, Hish, ibn Ishaq says, he flared up and began shatim and Sub like they had never heard before, right? Yani uh, cursing them in a very vile manner. And they responded back in kind. They did the exact same thing back to him. And Sa'ad ibn Ubada, who had a, a more of a calm nature, he held on to Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, and he said, My dear brother, the matter between us and them is more than just cursing. It's not going to help us now to curse, right? You can curse as much as you want. The matter has reached something beyond cursing. You don't, there was no point, you know, let's just calm down and uh, leave them alone for what is now between us, it is much more than mere la'an and shatim it's not going to help us now, and so they returned back to the Prophet ﷺ they said, salamu alaykum, and then they said adal wa adal wa that was their indication, these are the names of the two tribes that did bi'irmauna bi'ir and raji'ah the two tribes that had come to them pretended to be Muslim, got all of the people, then they massacred them, right? So they simply came back and they gave the names of the two tribes. That's it. This was the indirect ishara. What? Treachery. Traitors, right? This was the indirect ishara that they used to convey to the Prophet ﷺ that. These people are traitors, they're just like Adul and uh, Qarra. And when the Prophet ﷺ heard this, he said, Allahu Akbar! Good news, glad tidings, good news. This is good news that they have flipped around. Because he realized his thiqa or his yaqeen in Allah Subh'anaHu Wa taala was so firm, he realized them flipping over meant their land, their property, their ghanima will eventually come to the Muslims, right? He realized And he was the only person whose thiqah was so strong in Allah, he actually took this as good news. That now that they're flipping over, khalas, now, and of course that was the last tribe that was uh, not upon Islam, as you know, in all of Medina at the time. And so, by them flipping over, khalas, Medina will become uh, a land completely of Muslims. And this is what the Prophet Sallallahu uh, wanted. And of course, eventually the news did spread that they had flipped over. Eventually, Muslims found out that the Banu Quraidah had broken the treaty. And this was the worst time For the believers, this night when they found out was the worst night of the entire uh, 25 days because the uncertainty, the fear, and this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, uh, In Surah Al-Ahzab, uh, verses ten to eleven: "If Ja'ukum min Fauquk wa min Asfal min Kum wa Idzahat al-Abssar wa Balghat al-Qulub al-Hanajira wa Talzununa Billahi al-Zununa." You began thinking every thought about Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Even the Sahaba, their minds are going helter-skelter, right? Hunadi kabituliy al-Mu'minun. This was where the believers were truly tested. Wasulzilu zilzaln Shadida, and they were shaken, a firm shaking. They were really shaken to the core. And uh, the munafiqun made it much worse. The munafiqoon made it much worse. Surah Ahzab tells us this, and it is explained in Ibn Isham and others, that they wanted to ask permission from the Prophet ﷺ to go back uh, home, to protect their family with the excuse that our children are without any help, our women are without any help. But the real excuse was they were too cowards to meet the people in battle. They didn't want to meet them. And they were giving, asking permission to leave. All of them, the munafiqun, wanted to leave. And one of them said out loud in the gathering, one of them said out loud, here was Muhammad wasallam. The munafiqoon never called him Rasulullah. That was one of the signs. Allah says in the Quran, لا تجعلوا دعاء كدعاء Don't call the Prophet says, like you call one another. Right? This is not the way Muslims call. Ya Muhammad or something. We don't say like this, right? يا رسول And the munafiqun would call him by his name. Right? The munafiqun would not have that adab. So one of them said, here was Muhammad sallallahu wasallam promising us the treasures of Kisra and qaisar hmm? Caesar and, the, Roman, uh, and uh, the Persian emperor, Kisra. And now one of us is too scared and he used a vulgar word, which means to go and defecate. We can't even go to the bathroom and do that, right? Now we can't even do this. Now what again, you know, to spread such fear and to be so crude to our Prophet clearly once again uh, Ahzab exposed and separated between the believers and the uh, Munafiqoon now here before we move on we find uh, one of the biggest benefits here uh, and I have said this many many times that Islam does not want to spread even the news of evil Islam does not sensationalize even the truth if something really happened that's bad, don't go and tell people about it. Forget, we're not even talking slander, we're not even talking exaggeration, we're talking about the truth. Here the Banu Qurayza have flipped. And the Prophet ﷺ says, keep it low. You don't have to go tell everybody, right? And this is in complete contrast to the hyper-inflated media that we live in, where every grisly detail, every gruesome matter, Needs to be analyzed and exposed and shown in every scandal and every juicy, salacious rumor. This is not adab. And it harms society. Why do you need to know the details of this rape or this murder or this? Even if it's true. Even if it's true. Because what happens is, it desensitizes society's heart. Even society has a qalb. Even society has haya. Right? And, okay, things happen sometimes. Even in an Islamic society, that's perfectly ideal. I don't want to be too much, but wallahi, you guys should understand, in the time of the Prophet we know there were prostitutes in Medina. Sahih Bukhari tells us this. In the time of the Prophet, a rape happened to a woman. Sahih Muslim tells us this. Right? This is the reality of the world we live in. That's the reality. You're not gonna change. This is an ideal utopic Medina. But you don't go and tell people grisly things. You don't go and advertise. You just... Keep it low now when you know of these things and society you know is aware of it what happens people get desensitized to nudity they get desensitized to crime to murder to and therefore as we see ourselves crime gets even more gruesome it gets more grisly. a murder is not even newsworthy anymore right it's not even something that the ideal situation is that you don't even hear of a crime until you capture the perpetrator and punish him. Then in Islamic societies it is announced that a rape occurred, this is the rapist, this is his death. Now you get the moral of the story, right? This is the ideal. And this is something we learn over and over again, uh, even in the Quran, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala says why did you have to spread it about the ifk of Aisha and in the Quran also uh, that why didn't you take it to uh, ulil amri minhum take it to the leaders and not just spread it and also in Sahih Bukhari we learned that when an issue happened in the time of Umar ibn Al-Khattab he wanted to uh, speak publicly uh, some of the senior sahaba said to him Don't speak here in this gathering. There's good and there's bad. Let's wait till we go back to Medina. They were in a gathering. uh, They were on an expedition. Let's get back. And then when you're in safety, then go and spread this news. The point being, again, this clearly demonstrates the difference of an ideal Islamic society versus the type of society we live in, that we don't talk about scandals or or, or affairs or anything. Just keep it hidden, and the fitrah remains pure at that. We also learn over here that the amazing yaqeen of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to take the worst possible news and yet read into it something positive and only he could do that Sallallahu Who else has that Iman that the worst news That now we're going to be, there's at least uh, 2,000 people, at least 2,000 people of the tribe, I'm saying. Amongst the men, there were 800-900, as we'll study. Uh, So around 2,500 of the tribe, of the Banu Quraidah, and they have a fortress, which they can come in and out of, and they're inside the city. How can we protect against them? How can we protect? And our families are here, and our children are there. And yet, our Prophet had so much trust in Allah, he said, Allahu Akbar, Abshiru, good news glad tidings, meaning alhamdulillah the final straw in the city of Medina has now been collapsed who could have had that yaqeen anybody who doesn't have that connection with Allah, what's gonna happen and this is a sign of his Wasallam, that at this time he read in something positive and he's telling them good news that just like what happened in Hudaybi as we'll see as well that inna fatahna laka fatham that whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees put your trust in it, there must be some good in it and of course, we also see and we're continuing to see the reality of the Munafiqoon that here is this Munafiq mocking the Prophet and saying, He promised us Kisra and Qaisar, now we can't even go do this, right? We can't even go to the bathroom, right? And what, what uh, narrow mindedness and how impatient that. Barely six, six, seven years after this munafiq uttered these words, the Muslims were eating from the plates of Kisra and Qaysar. Not even a lifetime, not even a generation. This is like, you know, not even a decade, wallahi. Think about it, right? When was Qadisiyah, right? When was all of uh, Yarmouk, when did this happen? In the end of Abu Bakr, the beginning of Umar, right? Less than seven years, and they are eating from the plates of Kisra and Qaisar exactly as the Prophet promised. تستعجلون, as the Prophet said, but you people are too hasty. You just don't trust that is going to happen. Now, in any case, so uh, uh, when the news spread, the army was already pretty thinly divided. And remember, we had already mentioned that uh, to demonstrate a show of force, they were marching throughout the trench all night long with. Uh, torches, and crying out at the top of their voices, Allahu Akbar! So that in case anybody comes, the impression is given that the army is larger than it is. And there's a constant patrol, but now they had to split the patrol into two. As it was, they've thinned out, because it's a large trench, and you have to go back and forth, make sure. Now they have to thin themselves out, and send a small contingent to monitor the the fortress of the women and children. right? And this was the tension that the Banu Quraidah Caused. And so they sent uh, Zayd ibn Haritha and uh, Salama ibn Aslam with a contingent of uh, fighters to go and protect the fortress that the Muslim women and the Muslim uh, children were and to make sure that the Banu Qarayza, uh know that they are being monitored. Uh, now, uh, When the Quraysh came, as we said, and again, this is from last week, uh, they did not know what to do uh, when they saw the trench. They realized that they cannot charge en masse, and so they decided to uh, set up Camp and wait it out. How long is this going to wait? We have 10,000. We have supplies. We can get more supplies. You're trapped in here. So obviously it's a waiting game and we will uh, win. Now a number of small incidents occurred. So we're going to talk about some of those incidents, the main incidents that occurred. Minor skirmishes occurred. And uh, the Battle of Khandaq is interesting in that, and there's much wisdom here, it was the largest gathering of non-muslims against the prophet sallam and yet it was the smallest number of casualties it is an amazing or one of the smallest number of casualties one of the top smallest numbers and perhaps you can say one or two other skirmishes were smaller than this but amongst the major battles it is really the smallest amongst the scale of the battle the casualties are negligible and this is an amazing amazing uh miracle really and of course this is because allah fought directly on their behalf when they had such trust in Allah, their casualties went even below Badr and Uhud. It's amazing. Think about it, right? Even though the number of people, what is Badr? 1,000 compared to 10,000, right? What is Uhud? 3,000 compared to 10,000. And yet the casualties were, you can count them on the fingers of one hand or perhaps six or something. I mean, there's a bit of ikhtalaf as usual, but literally just a handful. And some of them were uh, by, most of them were by bows and arrows, which is really, I any mean, That's the not a direct battle. You just come and it just kills you, as we're going to talk about with Sa'id ibn Muadh. So the point being, it is amazing that, despite being the largest army, yet in terms of casualties, it is the smallest and this is wallahi wallahi this is an ayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it is a sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for us to reflect upon that, that if Allah helps you then خلاص, you're not going to be uh, defeated in any case some of the small things that happened of the, uh, of the minor skirmishes that happened is that on one of the uh, places of the trench a small group managed to break across. When there was nobody on the other side, they managed to fling their courses across, and it was five of them. And uh, the leader of them was Amr ibn Abdu Wood. Amr ibn Abdu Wood. Wood is one of the idols, so Abdu Wood. And Amr ibn Abdu Wood, uh, he was of the elders of Quraysh, who was known for his ferocity, and he had inflicted many wounds and even killed one or two in the Battle of Badr. And he was known for his uh, ferocity. And in the battle of Ahzab, he had put on the, uh, the, the, the red uh, turban, and that was the turban of death. That was the sign. It was like meant to inflict fear. This was a sign for both sides, by the way. It's like something that was known. It's called the, uh, the, the sign of death, basically. That you're, 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 you're boasting. That come and fight me, and I will kill you. And he was a strong and muscular man. And uh, when he came across... He managed to jump across. He, uh, a contingent immediately came running up to him. So he said, who will fight me? This Mubaraza, one-on-one. Who will fight me? And uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib said, I will. But the Prophet said to him, Ya Ali, this is Amr ibn Abdul Wood. Ali was at this time, how old is Ali at this time? Right? He's in his mid-twenties at this time. He's still young. And Amr ibn Abduwood is going to be at the prime of his fighting. He has experience, decades of experience, right? And he said to Ali, not now, this is Amr ibn Abduwood, let one of the seniors go and uh, fight him. So uh, when nobody stood up, he said again, who will fight me? Again, Ali said, let me go do it. And the Prophet said, he is Amr ibn Abduwood. For the third time, he said, who is going to fight me? And so when Ali once again asked permission and the Prophet said, it is Amr ibn Abdul Wood, Ali said, wa in Amr ibn, even if it is Amr ibn Abdul Wood, somebody's got to do it. And so the Prophet says, and when he saw that zeal, he allowed Ali to stand up and, uh, and uh, fight. And so uh, Amr said, who is this? Who is this young man coming? And so he said, Ali ibn Abi Talib. Now Ali was a kid to Amr. Like he knows, Amr knows him since he's a baby. And, you know, I'm sure his father, we don't know, but I'm sure his father was a friend to Amr. So he said to Ya my little kid, you know, you go back and send one of your elders. I mean, who are you to fight me? I go go and get some man. I, I have nothing against you. You're just a kid. Now, obviously, from his perspective, he's seen Ali grow up and he's not, you know, theres the, 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 the attitude is there that I, you go and get a man. I don't want to fight a, a, a little uh, kid. And so... Uh, uh, and he said to him, "Oh, he said to him, and I have no desire to kill or harm you." And Ali said, "But I have a desire to kill you." <laughs> so when he said this, Khalas Amr became enraged, and he charged forward, and he charged forward to uh, kill Ali. And he is riding on his horse, and uh, Ali is riding on his horse. And Ibn Ishaq says the dust that the horses raised up completely covered what was going on. And the only news that came to them that Ali had won was the takbir from the middle of the dust, right? That they heard Allahu Akbar from the middle of the dust. This was the news that uh, Ali had actually uh, won. And uh, according to another uh, report, what happened was that, uh, was that uh, when they got close, Amr ibn Abdul Wood, he actually jumped off his horse to fight him one-on-one. And when he jumped off his horse, uh, Ali also jumped off his horse, and he raced towards him, and he tried his hardest to give him a, a blow to the head. And Ali raised his shield, and the shield broke in half. It was that, and this is a metal shield, it broke in half. But it managed to deflect the sword, and the same instant he raised his shield, the same instant he plunged it into the neck of Amr. And that requires a skill that, I don't think any of us have ever experienced or practiced, and may Allah protect all of us, but simultaneous, like with one hand the blow, and then because Amr's entire force is in the blow, so he's not on the defensive now. His entire body weight is on the offensive, right? And Ali, split second timing, he uses that to block it, and then with the other hand, plunges direct into the neck, and so, one clean blow and khalas, amr is gone not even a battle in that and this is a skill and Ali of course was the battle, the warrior uh, that uh, we all know about another uh, person who crossed over was uh, Nawfal ibn Abdullah another of the, the, the people of the Quraysh and it was Zubayr ibn al-Awwam uh, who charged up to him and Zubayr hit him with so much force that uh, Nawfal's body literally split in half Zubayr hit him with so much force, literally the body split in half. And someone remarked to Zubayr, "What an amazing sword that you have!" And so Zubayr said, "It's not the sword; it's the arm. It's not the sword; it's the arm. You know, it's like, yani, you know, it's uh, um, it's allowed here a little bit of, you know, <laughs> it's like sometimes it's allowed, you know, so because it's not, the, it's not the sword here; it's the arm that did this, right? Uh, and um." Naufel's body uh, lay there for a while in the sun, uh, and after a while the Quraysh cried out that, uh, oh, uh, you know, oh, 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 Muslims, let us basically uh, purchase this body so that we can bury it. We will pay you some money, uh, you can throw the body over to us, and then we will uh, bury it. And the Prophet ﷺ said, this corpse is najis, and its famine is najis. This corpse is filthy, and the price is filthy, we have no need of your money, and we do not buy the price of corpses. Come and get it and bury it. Right? And this I have said even from the Battle of Badr onwards, that the dignity of burial is given to everyone. Right? Even those who have tried to kill you in the battlefield, the Prophet Sallallahu allowed the burial, and he said, come and get it, but we don't, have any, we don't need any of your uh, money. Uh, of the people who crossed over, by the way, of the few people who crossed over was Khalid ibn al-Walid. Mm -hmm. Khalid ibn al-Walid managed to break over and cross over, and we know the genius of Khalid, and he was one of the few people who managed to cross over. He had a sword fight, but nobody died, and he basically uh, jumped back over. Of those who crossed as well was Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl, and he too eventually had to flee back without causing any uh, uh, death or any major damage. The total number of pagans, or mushrikun, who were killed uh, probably around three or four, and the total number of Muslims, most of whom with arrows, because the Quraysh had plenty of arrows on the outside, and their. Showering it inside uh, were around six or maybe seven. Uh, so again, in the handful, both of the the sides are in the uh, handful. And as I said, out of all of the major battles, it is. Uh, really, a sign from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. How few casualties of the Muslims, even though ten thousand people have been gathered. Of course, the most tragic death is really the death of Sa'd bin Muadh. This is the tragedy of uh, the tragedy of the Battle of Khandaq. We've just seen his status, Sa'd bin Muadh, right now when he's been sent as the delegation. Right, he is the chieftain of the Aus. and as it was, we said the Ous had more prestige. Anyway, in the days of Jahiliyyah, obviously in Islam, they're all the same. In the days of Jahiliyyah, the Aus is considered the slightly superior. In the days of Jahiliyyah, the Aus were also richer. The Aus had the marketplace, and the Aus were more uh, landowners and businessmen. They had the, the, the more money, and the Khazraj were more into the labor. And so, as it is, that in the days of Jahiliya Sa'd ibn Mu'adh already had been their uh, chieftain, and uh, Aisha, narrates, uh, Aisha narrates that when we were in the fortress, the Hisan, I was sitting with the mother of Sa'ad, would Misad. And Saad came to bid her farewell, meaning he's going to go to the front line now. So he's not going to see her until the end. So he's gone to the very last time. Now he doesn't know it is literally the last time, but he's gone to bid her farewell for the battle time, duration of the battle. He's gone to bid her farewell, and he's dressed in his armor. And uh, Aisha says that at the time hijab had not been Uh, Revealed The verses of hijab had not come down. As I have said, the verses of hijab came down at the end of the fifth year of the hijrah. So they're going to come down another two, three months from now. And uh, as well I have said the verses of hijab were of the last commandments revealed. After all the verses, or most of the verses of the ibadat, uh, after the verses of inheritance, after the verses of marriage and divorce, of the very final commandments to come down uh, is the verses of hijab. And that shows us uh, again, We we start with the bigger things Then we get to the issues of hijab In our society it's really the flip opposite Where you start with the hijab and then work your way to the salah Whereas you're supposed to start with the salah And then concentrate on the spirituality Work your way up there In any case, Aisha is saying She's explaining how come she's sitting and Saad can see her Because there's no hijab at this time So uh, Saad comes and he speaks to his mother Bids her farewell His mother says, oh my son, hurry up Don't waste your time with me, go to the front Again, this is the, the, the iman that they have That there's no dilly-dallying here. Don't waste your time with me. You're late. Everybody else is already on the front line. Go. And as he departs, Aisha says to Umm Sa'd uh, that how sparse is his armor. I wish he had more armor. And Aisha says that he was only wearing uh, uh, a male, um, uh, basically on the chest area. You know, the armor coating that is there. And his arms were all open because he couldn't afford, he didn't have uh, the armor for the, the hands. And Aisha says, he was injured from where I was worried he would be injured. Like when I saw him, that this isn't good enough. That And she mentioned to Ummah Sa'ad that I wish he had better armor. And he was injured exactly where I uh, was worried about, where he was exposed. And an arrow struck him right in the upper part of his Right in the upper part of his hand, over here, right where the main uh, artery goes through, deep it went inside, and this was the wound that eventually, after a few weeks, you could not cure this wound. It bled and it bled and it bled until uh, he died. Uh, you know, after the battle, I will talk about. Uh, we'll talk about this, inshallah, next Wednesday. Uh, but it was. Hibab uh, ibn al- uh, ibn al-Ariqa that shot him Hibab ibn al-Ariqa that shot him that he saw that spot opening and so he shot him from across uh, the trench and he shouted out to him take this from me and and I am ibn al-Ariqa like this is my gift to you and I am ibn al-Ariqa and uh, so he's boasting that the, I, I I caused you this and uh Saad responded that responded that uh uh, uh, and he made a, uh, and, uh, changed his name, and he said, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, عَرَّقَ means to cause to sweat and be in distress, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cause your face to be sweating because of this in nar. Uh And eventually, of course, we'll talk about this, uh, he died because of this wound. Uh, and uh, Sa'id ibn Mu'adh, I mean, so much just to be said about him. sa bin ibn Mu'adh, uh, he was that convert, He was that convert who accepted Islam at the hands of Musab ibn Umair. One of the earliest converts uh, at the hands of Musab ibn Umair. And uh, it was because of Sa'ad's conversion that his entire tribe accepted Islam. That when Sa'ad converted, he told his tribe that, I will not speak to anyone of you until you follow this religion. You leave idolatry and you accept Tawheed. And they loved him so much that out of a love for him they embraced Islam. And this shows the status that he had amongst his people, that out of a love for him the entire tribe embraced Islam. The entire sub-tribe meaning not all of the Aus, but even the Aus had many sub-tribes. His sub-tribe the entire sub-tribe embraced uh, Islam. And uh, Sa'd ibn Mu'ad as well uh, uh, what else is narrated about him? Of course, uh, the incident of Badr. We all we did the incident of Badr. That when the Prophet ﷺ realized that the Quraysh don't have a caravan, they have an army. And he had with him The Muhajirun and the Ansar. And the Ansar had not taken the oath to fight an offensive fight. They had only taken the oath to fight a defensive fight. Remember the Treaty of Aqaba, right? And so he hasn't extracted this oath from them. And so he says to them, well, now that we know it's not the Eir of Quraysh, but rather it's the army of Quraysh, what do you say? And so Abu Bakr stood up and said, do as you please, we will follow you. And then he said, "Uh, you have spoken well. Uh, What do you say? Then Umar stood up and then uh, said it as well. And once again, the Prophet said, You have spoken well. And then another person stood above the Muhajirun and he made even more compliments. And the Prophet said, You have spoken well. Then there was silence because the Sahaba didn't understand what's going on. It was Sa'ad who understood what's going on. It was Sa'ad who had the intelligence and who had the Iman and the courage. And he immediately stood up and said, La'allaka ta'anina, Ya Allah. Are you Perhaps you're referencing us. That's what you're waiting and the silence of the Prophet indicated, yes, that was the case, right? So then he said, Fawallahi, O Messenger of Allah, go wherever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told you to go. Go forth and go into the uh the water or go to Barak al Ghimad, which is Barak al Ghimad means go to the moon in like Barak al Ghimad is a non-existent area. It's like go wherever you want. haythu amvak Allah. go wherever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told you to go, and you will find us right behind you. We will not tell you, like the Bani Israel said to move you and your lord go fight we are here and we're gonna sit over here we will say you and your lord go fight and we are with you wherever you go this is Sa'd ibn Mu'adh right? that brave, bad, uh, the brave uh, speech that he gave one of the most eloquent speeches of the whole seerah this is sa ibn Mu'adh sa ibn Mu'adh uh, another story about Sa'd ibn Mu'adh that really shows his Iman, uh, is that Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, by the way, he was close friends with Umayyah ibn Khalaf in the days of Jahiliyyah. Umayyah ibn Khalaf, the the, the infamous Umayyah ibn Khalaf. And, they considered themselves to be business brothers. They had something called business brothers. So whenever he would go to Mecca, he would stay in Umayyah's house. Whenever Umayyah would come to Medina or Yathrib, he would stay in Saad's house. So one day, uh, early after the Hijrah, uh, probably in the first year of the Hijrah, he went to Mecca for his business routine. And uh, Umayyah said, don't go out in the daytime because there's tension, you know, between Yathrib or Medina and people of Mecca. Go out at night. So he went out at night and Abu Jahl heard the noise, went out to was going on, and lo and behold, it is Sa'd ibn Mu'adh. So Abu Jahl said, how dare you come here when you have helped our renegade or the Prophet How How can you be in our city when you have done this to us? You have adopted or you have taken him. How can you do this? And the two of them began verbally raising their voices. Umayyah sided with Abu Jahl and said to Sa'd, don't rebuke Abu Jahl, um, or uh, Abu al they called him, not Abu Jahl, Abu Jahl is what we call him. Uh, don't rebuke Abu Hakam. he is our Sayyid and our leader, right? And he sided with Abu Jahl basically against, uh, uh, against uh, Sa'ad, and he tried to calm Sa'ad down and he was holding him back, basically it's going to get physical, and Sa'ad says to, uh, to Umayyah, get your hands off of me, for wallahi I heard the Prophet say that he will kill you. And this shocked Umayyah, because he says, Muhammad says he will kill me. Wallahi, he has never spoken a lie in his life. Meaning this must be true. He has never spoken a lie in his life. And he went back shocked to his wife and said, Muhammad has predicted he will kill me. And his wife said, he has said this, then it will be true. And when the battle of Badr happened, that is why Umayyah, if you remember the story, Umayyah tried his best to get out of it. And Umayyah paid somebody 4,000 dinars to go fight, and Umayyad did this, Umayyad did that. Abu Jahl mocked him, threatened him, until finally got the better of him, and he marched to his death, knowing that you know, this would be his death, but this was the uh, the uh, reality. Uh, Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, uh, of course, uh, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh was the one that, uh, when he died, the Prophet said, the angels prayed his janazah, and the angels took his body up, and uh, Sa'ad. this is the famous hadith in Bukhari and Muslim and in other versions rahman Sa'ad ibn, uh, Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad, that the throne of Allah shook at the death of Sa'ad scholars have said this is one of two interpretations the first it shook out of happiness to greet him the second it shook out of anger that somebody killed him both interpretations are valid right? it shook out of happiness to greet him or it shook out of anger that how dare somebody uh, killed him. Uh, in any case, one Sa'ad was wounded, uh, Sa'ad made a dua to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala that, Oh Allah, if you will allow the Quraysh to come back and fight, then allow me to live to fight them. Because there is no nation that is more despised to me than them for what they have done to your Rasul. But, if this will be the last time, then accept me as a shaheed. Accept me as a shaheed. That's it, I have no reason to live now. Khalas. Accept me as a shaheed. But then he said, But allow my eyes to be sweetened and comforted by seeing the Banu Qurayza and what happens to them. He made this dua, basically, on his well he didn't realize it's his deathbed right? but wounded, bleeding and he made this dua that oh Allah if there's going to be any more fight then please cure me and allow me to fight them but if that's it, there's not going to be any more battle then let me be a shaheed but at least let me see the Banu Qarada because he feels anger rage, how dare they do this and of course he has a history with them going back to the days of Jahiliyyah he has friendship with them Right, He has whole history with them And so he says, let me see Coolness, يعني, ayn, comfort my eyes By seeing the retribution That will happen to the Banu Quraidah And of course it was Sa'd Who, uh, Allah will That they put in charge right? Because he was the closest person to them We'll talk about that next Wednesday uh, But look, his dua was accepted His dua was literally accepted That as soon as the, the battle finished Then they went to the Banu Quraidah Saad could not even walk and he had to be carried, and he had to go on a donkey. He could not walk even to the Banu Qurayda, which is inside the city, basically. And he's wounded, he's bleeding, and in that state, he gives the verdict that Allah Azza wa Jal was pleased with, and uh, he dies shortly after that. So his du'a was fulfilled, and of course, this is uh, the reality of the du'a of the shaheed and the du'a of the one who is, uh, uh, you know, uh, given his life for the sake of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Um, oh, one other thing about Sa'd is uh, one of the small hadith about Sa'd. That shows how much he was on the mind of the Prophet. That two years later, two years, the seventh year of the maybe even the eighth, we don't know exactly when, two or three years after the death of Sa'ad, an incident happened, very trivial, very small. But the first name that comes to the mind of the Prophet is Sa'ad, and this shows us the weight that the death of Sa'ad had on him. In the year of the the the, the 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 emissaries and the years of sending the letters to the kings and the rulers right of the neighboring region and that began around the seventh year of the Hijrah that's why we know this took place either the seventh or the eighth year one of the letters came back from the province what is now called Bahrain basically but back then it had other names one of these provinces of uh, closer to the uh, Persian Empire and the Emperor wrote back a somewhat sympathetic letter, not a harsh letter, and he gifted the Prophet Sallallahu one of the finest gifts, one of the finest robes that he had ever worn Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And uh, there's a lot of fiqh that is to be derived because the robe, it is said, it had gold decorations on it. and the Sahaba, it is said, had seen nothing like this. Now, the Arabs did not produce fine cloths. The Arabs were known for leather and for uh, trading goods. They were were a, a trading depot. They would take from here, sell there, take from here, sell there. They did not produce their own cloth. They would import the good cloth. And of course, the finest cloth came from Persia. The finest brocades came from Persia. So, you can imagine a ruler is gifting to what he thinks is another ruler. Right? And you can imagine how fine this will be. And the the, the, sunnah, the hadith in Tirmidhi says, the sahaba began going around the Prophet ﷺ to look at his garment. Can you imagine how dazzling it would have been? That they had never seen a garment so beautiful. And they're walking around. Now footnote here, not related to the seerah. This shows us many things. Of them is that it shows us it is completely halal to wear fine clothes. And our Prophet is wearing an extremely fine garment, very plush, very luxurious garment. But the perfection is that our Prophet never spent money on it. By the way, we have to point this out as well, he would not spend money on it, right? And that he was not his heart was not attached to it. And this is proven by what he said to the Sahaba, that he was shocked at their shocked. At their shocked. He was shocked at how shocked they were. Right? And he said, "Atajabuna min Are you impressed with this? So he is shocked that they are finding this impressive. min So it, it shows where is his heart. He's not, it's not a big deal. He got a gift, he's wearing it. He did himself is not as attached to it as the Sahaba seem to be, right? So he said, "Atajabuna min هَذَا Then what did he say? فَوَاللَّهِ لَمَنْ سَعْدِ بِنْ فِي الجنة. Look, where did it come out of? Out of nowhere, right? والله, the handkerchief of Sa'd ibn Mu'ad in Jannah is better than all of this, right? Out of nowhere, the name that comes to mind Saad ibn Muath like he's trying to explain and what does that show this is a subconsciously who is the person the process is thinking about now right the mandeel, which is the, the you know the stuff used to wipe yourself literally handkerchief right this is the the cloth that you know up until recently you would have to wipe your dirty things your nose and whatnot. his handkerchief is better than this entire brocade this entire garment that you are impressed with small hadith but what does it show it shows, psychologically, how much love the Prophet ﷺ had for uh, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. In any case, uh, getting back to the story, so this is Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, that one of these days, he was, we don't know which day, it's not mentioned early, middle, or whatnot, uh, but most likely sometime in the middle, it came in, and uh, he was so wounded that they had to set up a special tent for him. Because he cannot go back home, there's nobody home. Homes are empty, all the women are there. So they had to set up a special tent for Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, and the Prophet would regularly visit Sa'ad in that tent to, con- to find out his condition and whatnot. And as we know, he never really recovered from that wound within a few uh, weeks, or maybe even a week. We don't know when the, the wound occurred. Basically, as soon as Khandaq finished, after a few days when the Banu Qreda incident happened, this was the end uh, for Sa'ad as well. Uh, of the incidents that is narrated as well, Uh, during the siege, which as we know lasted, some say 20, some say 25, some say 30 days, the ikhtilaf is trivial, around a month, around a month, and Ibn Ishaq says 25 days, and others say a bit more, a bit less, but overall, around a month was how long the siege lasted. Of the things that we learn, which is uh, Bukhari and Muslim and all of the books of Hadith mention, that on one particular day, the Uh, harasa or the the, the border patrol and the the skirmishes and the arrows and whatnot became so severe that the Muslims were not able to pray asr they couldn't even pause to pray asr now there's a big controversy amongst the fuqaha was salat al khawf revealed by this time or not and there's a big controversy because if salat al khawf were revealed why didn't they pray salat al khawf and the majority position is that salat al khawf had been revealed at this time, but they were so preoccupied that the notion of praying was not, didn't, they didn't even have the, the time to remember that they forgot, if that makes sense. They're so busy doing what they had to do that it was a genuine like moment where they forgot. And the evidence for this is that the ahadith seem to suggest this that, uh, and there are so many ahadith, if you look at Bukhari and Muslim you find at least ten hadith about this one incident uh, and because it has some fiqh about delaying the salah and about making up delayed salah this is where we get the, the fiqh of fawat, of the, the missed prayers, this is where we get it from uh, That the process never of course intentionally missed a prayer we have uh, two recorded instances of a missing salah, only two uh, this is the one of them and then the other one of them was the oversleeping at Fajr that took place that the, mar- the, the army was going the entire night. They were marching non-stop the entire night. And then they rested Qubayl al-Fajr, like an hour before Fajr. And uh, the Prophet said, who will guard us and wake us for Fajr? Bilal said, I will. And so, uh, all of the army fell asleep immediately. And then Bilal eventually as well fell asleep. And Uh, the first person to wake up was the Prophet ﷺ with the heat of the sun. And the first thing he said, Ya Bilal, what happened? SubhanAllah. Look, you know, his own mind about salah. Ya Bilal, what happened? And so Bilal said, Ya Rasulullah, the same one who caused you to sleep caused me to sleep. (laughs) It's not my fault. Right? The one who took your soul took my soul as well. Don't blame me. And so uh, that that was a genuine uh, oversleeping of fajr that took place once uh, and uh, this was the only other time in the seerah that uh, authentically it is reported that, and both of them are uh, unintentional, so the entire life obviously never had happened, now what happened here, uh, that I'll just quote one or two hadith. that Umar came to the Prophet and said uh, uh, Ya Rasulullah uh, I was not able to pray Asr until uh, uh, the sun has already set I'm not able I haven't prayed Asr and the sun had set and the Prophet ﷺ said and I too was not able to pray Asr and so they both did wudu and they prayed Asr after the sun had set after the sun had set Sahih bukhari mentions that the prophet sallallahu said and this is a very famous hadith shaghaluna anis salat alwusta hatta gharabat shams mala allahu quburahum wa buyutahum nara that they have shaghaluna they've made us busy so much so that we have not even managed to pray salat alwusta now this also shows us hafid wa ala salawati wa salat alwusta it means salat asr, right uh this is the correct position because of this hadith that anis عَنِ الْوُسْطَى They kept us busy from the middle salah. Until we weren't able to pray it and the sun has set, may Allah fill their houses and their graves with the fire. nara. He is so angry, not because they're attempting to kill him, because they have managed to prevent Salat al-Asr. Look at his anger, what is it for? Right. I wasn't able to pray Asr. And he's angry at that. May Allah fill their graves and their. So, what will be the case of the one whose money prevents him from Salat al-Asr? Whose business prevents him from Salat Al-Asr? Whose television and sports show prevents him from Salat Al-Asr? Think about this, right? What will be his case? And here is the Prophet ﷺ on the battlefield and he's fuming angry at them. Why? wusta This is why he's angry at them. So after the sun had set he then uh, prayed Salat al-Asr. Now, from this, the fuqaha have derived the fiqh point not related to the seerah. And this is, inshallah, the correct opinion, that when you need to make up salawat, you make them up in the right order order, if it is reasonable and possible to do so. So, for example, even though Maghrib time had come in, he didn't pray Maghrib. He prayed Asr. And then he prayed Maghrib. And this shows us that the general rule You make up salawat in the order that you miss them, and the order that they should be prayed. Now, uh, again, because we just mentioned it, what if this is not possible? It's not possible for multiple reasons. Number one reason, uh, you haven't prayed for 5, 10, 15 years, then what are you going to do? Make up 15 years salah before you say the next prayer? Obviously not. So then it doesn't apply. right? Number two, the scholars say that if you praying one salah will make two salah missed. Whereas if you jump to the second salah, then the first salah is the only one missed, then you jump to the second salah. What does this mean? You get the point here that uh, it's between, let's say, uh, Asr and Maghrib, right? And uh, you haven't prayed, let's say, Dhuhr. Okay? So if you move on to the second salah, then you will miss the first and the second timing. Therefore, you begin with the timing that you still have, and then you make up the other salah. Okay? So, in this case, Maghrib, there was still time left for it. And therefore, the Prophet and prayed Asr before he prayed Maghrib. In any case, that's all fiqh, but not related to the sirah. but again, just for benefit. Uh, uh, one final point, and we're going to start the story, but then we're going to have to pause uh, and then continue next week. And that is, where did the turn come about? What happened? It was uh, the role of Nu'im ibn Mas'ud al-Ghatafani right the nu'aym ibn masud al we will begin the story here we're not going to finish it because it's a long uh, part of the story and this was when the tide shifted the very end of the siege a few days are left in the siege now they don't know this but uh, from our cr- chronology probably around the 20th day probably around the 20 again there's no we don't have a detailed narr- narration but around the 20th day uh, out of the blue somebody just walks into the camp of the muslims and his name is Nu'aym ibn Mas'ud from the tribe of Ghatafan. And they're outside. The tribe of Ghatafan. And he says to him, Ya Rasulallah, inni qad aslamtu I have accepted Islam. And tell me to do whatever you want me to do. Now, Nu'aym ibn Mas'ud was the one Allah Azza used to shift the entire tide around. And The books of Sirah hardly mention his story, like, because he's from Ghatafan. He's not Makki, he's not Madani. There's hardly any information about him. We just know tidbits. One of the things we know is that in the conquest of Mecca, uh, he was the one that was carrying the banner for the tribe of Ghatafan. He became the liwa' holder. For for the Muslim side from the tribe of Ghatfan, this that's a very big honor. Uh, we don't know much about him. I tried my best to really uh, do as thorough of a research as I could, and I found a few tidbits. And I'll develop a theory. This is completely from me. There's no, we don't know his story except one or two things. And Allah knows best. I'll tell you what we know, and I'll tell you what my theory is. Leave it at that. What do we know about Nu'im ibn? Uh, uh, Nu'aym ibn Mas'ud, excuse me, ibn Mas'ud, Mas'ud al ibn Mas'ud al-Ghattafani his first mention comes in the fourth year of the Hijrah that the tribe of Ghatafan he was of the elite but not the chief so he's of the second year you know, he's known, he's got some strings and connections but he's not the big boss and to do this you needed to have second tier, not the big boss. Allah Azza wa Jal had this all, obviously, Makar wa Makar Allah, right? To do what he did, you needed to be one rank below the big man. You needed to be in the vizier ranks, right? Not the prime minister. That one level below. And that was Nu'im ibn Mas'ud. So, Nu'im ibn Mas'ud was in Mecca in the fourth year of the hijrah. He's a pagan, he's a mushrik. And... Uh, He's on his business trips, whatever they're doing in Mecca. Abu Sufyan goes to him. He has a good friendship with Abu Sufyan. So Abu Sufyan goes to him and says, I need to use you for something. And they negotiate a price. Big amount of price. What do they negotiate? Abu Sufyan says, we had made a promise with Muhammad that we would meet at Badr. What promise is this fourth year of the Hijrah? Second... Uhud, at Badr. <laughs> I know it's confusing, right? Uhud, part two. Uhud, what was the last point of Uhud? We're going to meet again at Badr. You see the point here, right? So, Uhud, the end of Uhud, remember what did Abu Sufyan say? We're going to have a meeting one year at Badr. Why Badr? Because it was convenient. Badr was the big plane, it's convenient for all of them to have a war there. So, Abu Sufyan says to Nu'aim ibn Mas'ud that, This year we cannot go, the crops have been bad, business has been... You know the typical excuses, they didn't want to fight, as we mentioned. We mentioned this before. You go to Muhammad and convince him not to come so that it appears he didn't come instead of us. You see the point here. You tell him that we are massive army, you've never seen this many people and this and that. Basically paint a false picture. Right? So... The people will hear that he never showed up. So the blame will be on them and not us. Okay? So Nu'aym agreed. Now he's not a Muslim. He's, he's never seen the Prophet. He's a Ghatafani. Nothing to do with this, right? He's being sucked in. But Allah Azza wa Jal has his own. So he agrees. He takes this money, uh, I believe it was 20 camels or something, whatever, there was a big amount of bribe, and he goes and he informs the Prophet of this lie. Uh, that uh, I have seen. Now he went to Medina uh, outwardly on a business trip, like not as a messenger, right? He's going, you know, uh, a ploy that he was going to buy dates or whatever. At this stage, Ghatafan is neutral. And that's why he's being used. In the fourth year of the Hijrah, early fourth year, Ghatafan is neutral. So Abu Sufyan is using him to plant false information. So he goes, he plants this false information. And the Prophet ﷺ says, Wallahi, we will go fight them even if I am alone I will go and be with him with, uh, with the maw'id and you know, he wasn't alone all the Muslims marched with him and all the Muslims came there and it was clear that the Quraysh never showed up not the Muslims we did this when we did it, right? This is the first and the major exposure that Nu'im has to the Prophet ﷺ. And the second minor thing that we have that one of the books of Sirah mentions is that probably around the late fourth year or the early fifth year that uh, the Prophet ﷺ made a treaty with the sub-tribe of Nu'aym and Nuaim was the one he negotiated with and that was uh, about the caravan of the Quraysh that what to do what not to do it was basically a, a simple treaty about uh, demarcating boundaries or something like this right That's all we know we don't know the details one of those small one-liners in the seerah now that's what we know what is my theory allahu a'lam but it appears that these interactions Impressed Nuaim so much. And he saw the bravery of the Prophet and he saw the truthfulness. And going to Medina, he must have been there a few days because you don't just go for an hour when you're traveling in those days, you, you rest and then you refresh and you move on interacting with the Prophet and the Muslims. That Islam became very dear to him. And he saw the reality of Islam. And so he met with the Prophet twice. Allah Azulullah has chosen him out of all of the people of Ghatafan, he is the one who has interacted directly with the Prophet Sallallahu right? And at the time, he's deemed neutral, both of these times. At the time, he's not a Muslim, and he's not with the Quraysh, he's neutral. But, Allah knows best, my theory is that, and I think it's a pretty obvious theory, or it's an obvious thing to make a stretch, that these interactions impressed Nu'aym so much, that he converted to Islam. And so, the next time he's able to interact with the Prophet he's actually a secret Muslim. And he is the only Muslim in his whole tribe because Ghatafan has not gotten involved up until now. Right? And this shows us, وَمَنْ يَجْعَلْ لَهُ وَيَرْزُقُهُ من حيث لا يحتسب Whoever has taqwa of Allah, Allah will make a way out for him. And Allah will provide for him from a source he never expected. How and where did a Ghatafani convert? Allah Azzawajal willed it. This is the point. You cannot fight against the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if Allah is helping you khalas that's it and so nuaim walks in out of the blue complete he literally sneaks away from qatafan in the middle of the night he makes his way to the camp of the prophet sallam and he embraces islam in front of the prophet sallam and says i am at your service o messenger of allah do what you tell me to do what do you want me to do i will do it right out of literally nowhere allah's help came through nuaim ibn mas'ud and so, the Prophet ﷺ, uh said to him, that, you are but one person, yani what will your help do on this side? What are you going to do to fight with us? You're just one person. You know, what are you going to do? But, go back and do anything that you can think of to protect us. Go back and do anything that you do that can uh, protect us. So, Nu'aym said, O Messenger of Allah, do you allow me to say anything? Meaning, do you give me permission to... Use tactics that are not the most honest tactics. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Al Harbu Khida. War is deceit. War is tricks. Al Harbu Khidah. Right? When you're fighting an enemy, you have to just like the Prophet would pretend to go in one direction, then he turns himself and go the other way. Right? This is khidah. Now, by the way, this is a very important fiqh point here. khid'a is not khiyana. This is a very important point we need to make here. Khid'ah is a little bit of tricks. Khayana is treason, treachery. Islam allows khid'ah during times of genuine war. And frankly, every nation does. Uh, Sun Tzu, who is the famous uh, Chinese author of the art of war. Sun Tzu wrote one of the first manuals of war. Uh, And I think it's the first maxim, he has a whole maxim full of war, and it's necessary reading material. Uh, You read it when you go to the halls of Seton or the halls of, uh, what's that place in England called? The uh, famous... uh, the famous, no, the, the military, Sandhurst, right? And here in America, the Virginia, all of these institutes, the first reading material is going to be Sun Tzu, the art of war. It is a classic. Sun Tzu says, I think it's the first maxim, that uh, lying is nine-tenths of war. This is like the way the world works, uh, World War II. Uh, so many things happened between uh, Germany and the Allies and whatnot, and one of the final things, the, the, the invasion of Normandy. And D-Day, the entire plan was complete surprise to the Germans, because they had been spoon-fed a bunch of lies. The Allies, I mean, I'm not going to World War II history, but you get my point here. I mean, it's reality. You have to pretend something, and then you do something else. All nations do this. And for anyone to come and say, oh, look at what your religion says, subhanallah, war around the world involves this. It's not anything. This is genuine war. It involves Khid'ah, but not khiyana. What is khiyana? Khiyana means you make a promise, but you know you're going to break it. Khiyana means you sign a treaty, but as soon as the other guy turns his back, you tear it up. This is khiyana. And Islam never, ever allows khiyana. But it allows khid'ah for the people who are genuinely engaged. Now who are those people is another question. For those who are genuinely engaged, every nation allows Khid'ah but not Khayana. Khayana means to break a promise. You can never break a promise. Khayana means to break a treaty. You can never break a treaty. Khayana means to stab someone in the back after you swore to him you wouldn't stab him in the back. This is Khayana. Khid'ah means you pretend you're walking this way, in reality you're gonna go that way. This is Khid'ah. It's deceit. You are not promising. You are giving an illusion. Or even, like uh, uh, Nu'im did, he used some tactics. He used some tactics. And this is something that is allowed. But what is not allowed is to give an oath, to swear, to give an allegiance, or, again, being realistic in our case, to hold a passport. And that passport comes with implicit conditions. And then, to go against the conditions of those passports. This is khiyana, and it's not khid'ah. To get a visa, to enter a country, and that visa has implicit conditions, you're not gonna disobey the law, you will be a law abiding citizen, da 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 da, this is khiyana, to get a visa and then you come and then you misuse and abuse and you cause havoc and mayhem, this is khiyana, it is not We have to be very clear because of the tense situation that we are uh, living in, that we cannot use this hadith to something that it does not apply to. In any case, uh, this is my theory about Nu'aym ibn uh, Mas'ud and so, uh, Nu'aym Basically, when when the Prophet said to him, Al-Harbu Khid'a, he took this as the green light, and it is the green light. So what did he do? He went first to the Banu Quraidah. Right from the Prophet's camp, the closest group is the Banu Quraidah. And again, it had, Allah Azza wa Jal had so willed, and again, this is amazing if you think about it. He had personal friendships with the people of the Banu Quraidah. And he had personal friendships with Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan is the one that has paid him a massive amount of money to go do something which he has successfully done. Meaning he said what he was supposed to say. As for the response to the Prophet, it's not his fault, right? He did what Abu Sufyan told him to do, which makes him what? Check trustworthy, right? And also he was friends with people of the Banu Quraidha, business partners with them in the days of Jahidiyyah, right? And in, even in the days of Islam when he's not a Muslim. And of course he is from the tribe of Ghatafan, again, Allah Azzawajal's plan is perfect. Who else is there that is friendly with the Quraysh, that is friendly with the Banu Qurayzha, and that is a member of the tribe of Ghatafan? Now he's a Muslim. So what did he do? He went to the Banu Qurayzha. And he, in the middle of the night, obviously this scared them, what is going on? And he said, you know who I am. You trust me, we have had dealings, uh, and what not, what not, in the past. Now, inni lakum nasihun mean I am here for your own good. We have a stronger relationship than the Quraysh. We and you, Ghatafan and you. You will have a stronger relationship than the uh, Quraysh. And realize that this land is your land. This wealth is your wealth. This property is your property. And as for the Quraysh, they have nothing to lose if they just leave. They have nothing to lose if they turn their back. You have everything to lose. So if they find an opportunity to attack, they will attack. But if they get tired, they're going to turn their backs and leave, and you will be the ones who will suffer. So, he said to the Banu uh, Quraidah, my advice to you is refuse to fight unless and until they guarantee you hostages from amongst them that will live with you. Rahan, and not hostage, but mortgage, really, right? Physical human mortgage take some of their ashraf and tell them to come be with you as collateral so that they don't just turn their backs and flee and if they do this then they will never abandon their own until they have fought Muhammad Wasallam. now frankly on the surface of it that's a very smart idea on the surface of it right? it makes complete sense And Nu'aym again, out of nowhere, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings this genius plan. And of course, Allah ilham, this is ilham from Allah, this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through Nu'aym coming. You know, Ilham is the type of wahi that non-prophets get. Ilham is the type of wahi that non-prophets get. So Nu'aym gave this advice and they found this to be, as we all do, very sensible. It's very sensible advice. Then he went to the Quraysh, made his way to Abu Sufyan the next morning. And he says to him, you know my status. You know, amongst uh, my people. You know who I am. And you have good relation with me. A khabar has reached me. And I feel our friendship owes that I tell you. Because of our past. But please, me and you only. Secret. What? What's going on? Know that the Banu Quraidah have regretted what they're doing and now they're getting double thoughts and they have sent a message to Muhammad saying that if we hand over some of the Ashraf of the Quraysh to execute will you forgive us for our lapse of judgment? Will you forgive us if we hand over some of the Ashraf of the Quraysh? Right? This is our Kafara basically that will give you some of the Ashraf then You can fight them and forgive us and khalas, end of story, we'll start a new slate. So then he tells Abu Sufyan that, so if they come to you to ask for your Ashraf fahdaru, Red warning, skull with bones on it, right? This is now the sign that this is treachery and treason. Okay? And then he went to the Ghatafan and he's Ghatafani. He's Ghatafani. And he gave them a similar story that they want some some uh, hostages from you, and they're not going to give you any hostages, because again, there's all going to be triple treachery here, until you hand over theirs, and this is a test for you to see if you can do it or not, take my advice, insist that they hand over first before you hand over anyone. Okay? Take my advice, you know me, I'm one of yours, etc., etc., and sure enough, within a few hours, an emissary from the Banu Quraidah comes, and his name is Azal ibn Samuel, Samuel, Azzal ibn Samuel, uh, saying that to, the, uh, to Abu Sufyan, uh, that uh, we have thought about our matter, and we want you to send some of your Ashraf to us, so that we can be assured that you will not depart and leave, so hand over a few of your Ashraf, and let them come back with me. And Abu Sufyan said, Let me think about this, go back and send an emissary. And the same thing happened with the other tribes. All three tribes are sending emissaries, everyone saying, You hand first. Right? And none of them is handing. The seeds of doubt have begun to be sown, and Salat al Isha is right around the corner. And so on this.